Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm glad you're joining us on our most recent podcast. Our guest today is from London. Dr. Tim Lobstein is director of the Childhood Obesity Program at the International Obesity Task Force based in London. Uh, the IOTF, International Obesity Task Force, is a component of the International Association for the Study of Obesity, which has more than 50 national and regional member organizations representing over 10,000 researchers and health professionals concerned with obesity. Prior to joining the IOTF, Dr. Lobstein was the director of the Food Commission in the UK, uh, one of the main uh, advocacy organizations on food and nutrition issues around the world, and was editor of the Food Magazine. In his capacity with the International Obesity Task Force, Tim has been heavily involved in coordinating programs around the world on childhood obesity with a special focus on issues such as food marketing and economic issues pertaining to obesity. So Tim, welcome. Thank you very much, Kelly. It's good to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you here, and you have so much interesting information to tell us. Let's get started with the the, uh, the initial question. You've talked a good bit about how the food supply might be addressed from dif different angles, and you mentioned both supply and demand issues. Could you say something a little bit about how why it's important to do both? Well, when you talk to the food industry and you say, hey, you know, you guys, you're selling all these uh, burgers and fries and confectionery and soft drinks. So, and they say, hey, guy, yeah, this is just what people want. If they didn't ask for it, of course, we wouldn't sell it to them. They're only asking for this stuff, and we're just providing it. And so what I've been doing is looking at sort of, well, they're not just doing that. The industry is doing a lot more than that. When they say they're just supplying what people want, they're actually pushing quite hard to get people to buy what these products are. And, of course, they're pushing the products that are more profitable to them, not just any product that we want. And so I've been looking at things like the agriculture policies and transport policies and food pricing policies to see how the supply of food is shaping the diet and shaping how we choose what we want, how we decide what we're going to eat. What type of foods bring the highest profit to the food industry? By and large, it's those with um, quite a lot of water in them, like soft drinks or with sugars and fats. So you get processed foods, processed uh, cookies and pastries and breakfast cereals. Those are the ones with quite a high profit margin. If you think about the content of a big box of breakfast cereals, there's usually you know, there's a handful of grains puffed up into a large amount of cereal, taking up a lot of volume. But the handful of grains probably cost about five cents. And the rest of the cost is in the packaging, the transport, and a lot of it in the marketing and promotion of what otherwise is just a sugary bunch of grain. So this idea then that industry is not simply responding to the demand from the public, but somehow the demand is being engineered by the industry. What are some examples of that happening? Well, you can look at the um, advertising budgets that industry have. For example, uh, in the UK, we estimate that uh, for about every uh, we have pounds over there, not dollars, but for every pound that uh, the government is spending to promote good health, the industry is spending about 100 pounds promoting their products. So the advertising budgets are far, far greater than the uh, government budgets for promoting healthy, healthy eating. Now, what are they spending it on? Well, they're spending it quite a lot on TV ads, although that's becoming a, a sort of old medium and people aren't using it quite so much, that is still where most of the money is going. But they're now expanding their, expanding their 
range of methods for promoting their food. So you can look on the internet, you'll find quite a lot of uh, products on the internet now, particularly the company's own websites where they're putting up some pretty dramatic and very enticing websites for kids. And of course what happens with a website is that children will come across them and they'll find their games and puzzles and interesting things there and they'll stay on that website for not just the 30 seconds that they might see on a TV ad, not even three minutes but perhaps even 30 minutes. So this is hugely helpful to the company to grab those children and make, their st make them stay on that website. And cost-effective, I'm assuming, because there's a one-time cost for, for creating that website, and then everybody who comes to it is basically a no-cost opportunity to market. Exactly that. And there are other methods, too. I mean, we've discussed today how uh, companies are using oh, educational materials or how they're going into schools with uh, characters and handing out free T-shirts and free samples of food. Or well, and like an M&M's counting book. <laughs> yes, that's example. right. There's a nursery counting book where you can actually put the M&M's into the book to show how many there are and count them out again, I suppose, putting them in your mouth. Very interesting. Uh, you even mentioned um, the uh, projected use of the cell phone and how that can become a marketing technique. Explain that if you would. Yeah, it's interesting. You get websites where you um, you send, uh, you send type in your cell phone number and they will send you uh, ringtones or logos to put on your cell phone. But of course they've got your cell phone number then and they can um, send you SMS texts. And uh, there's also some interest now in using Bluetooth technology so that uh, they can put a, an ad right next to where you are so, for example, if you're walking past, a, past a, a fast food chain, they can Bluetooth to your phone, any passing phone, special offers, come in, buy two for one. So, so you have very direct marketing right in your location using new technology. Um, the U.S. version of that is, is about to hit, we believe, which is the use of the uh, global positioning system, GPS technology, inside the cell phones where the, um, the computer somewhere, when you power up your cell phone, will recognize your location and start to send you advertisements specific to that location. And that, combined with the Bluetooth thing you're talking about, makes it sound like it's uh, anybody with a cell phone becomes another opportunity to be, the, be a consumer. Yes, this is... Uh, but I suppose what's particularly worrying to me is that this isn't just adults who might be able to cope with these sort of things but it's kids and quite young kids too because if they have a cell phone they can be you know 10 11 12 my kid had a cell phone at about age 12 and so you know these these are children who aren't going to be well protected and haven't got the mechanisms for dealing with this stuff they're gullible they're vulnerable uh, and i'm i'm now siding increasingly with the moves that are being undertaken at uh, organizations like the world health organization to try and bring some controls in particularly for children how do you believe this marketing picture aimed at children uh, affects parents' ability to control their children's lives and to um, raise them in the sort of spirit they'd like to be raised? Oh, well, ask me. I'm an old parent now. Mine have grown up. But uh, the battles we used to have, and for a start, the kids are seeing a lot of advertising in situations where I am not present and I'm, I'm not even in the room not just on television, which they may be watching in their bedrooms, uh, uh, not just on the internet, which they may be browsing for their homework, but they've gone sidetracked off to look at this stuff. Uh, but in, at the cinema, they might uh, come across advertising uh, product placements in the films, uh, in, in books they're reading, at school, there'll be um, promotional material, perhaps used as educational material in the schools. There's a number of range of places where 
kids are going to be vulnerable that um, as a parent I haven't got control. Perhaps one of the most um, difficult ones is when you're shopping. If you take your child shopping with you, there's a whole load of clever techniques. I have to give it to the industry. They're extremely clever techniques for getting kids to be attracted to products on the shop shelves or increasingly down at child's level on the floor or on the first shelf. So there, that's where they're using you know, very attractive uh, product packaging, uh, cartoon gimmicks, uh, film tie-ins, characters from TV, cartoons that they know, all these sort of gimmicks on the package, next to the package, different ways to attract a child at the checkout as well where you're queuing up. Now the kids grab these things and then you have this battle. You have this battle, I want it. No, you can't have it, but I want it. Please, can I have it? You have that sort of battle and it become, can be quite a nasty battle, quite a ferocious battle of you trying to exercise control and the child just becoming more and more upset. And this sort of battle is just the battle that I think it's destructive to have between parent and child and really should be happening between public health authorities and the, the commercial uh, industry that's producing the products. Well, and you've noted the term that gets used to describe this process as a, as a very specifically designed one by the industry as pester power. That's right. Pester power. The industry know this very well. They know if they can get to kids, even quite young kids, and get them familiar with a brand, those kids are going to request that brand. And the parents then have to fight back against that request or yield to it. And if they yield to it, then, you know, slippery slope, the kids are getting their way, and the boundaries become very difficult to set. You know, this, this is completely hypothetical, but I know in the United States, uh, public opinion turned against the tobacco industry for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons, one of, one of the events that occurred that was most instrumental in that change were lawsuits that got filed against the industry. And through the discovery phase of the lawsuits, a lot of internal documentation came out that talked about the industry's callous marketing to both adults and children. And it'd be interesting to see if that those sort of things exist in the food industry. And well, the, the pester power is not yeah. is is not a concoction of the nutrition advocates, but of the marketing industry itself. I gather we it's, we had a uh, the equivalent to congressional hearings. We had a, a, a parliamentary hearing in the UK uh, and called the industry to talk about obesity and their role in trying to um, help well challenge obesity and, and reduce it. And they um, swore in front of the committee that they didn't uh, involve anything that would uh, induce children to persuade their parents to purchase anything until one of the um, witnesses there came up and said, well, just a minute, what's this advertisement you have? You've put in the trade press uh, calling for someone to help you in the marketing department with experience of pester power. What does this pester power mean? You've put an ad, you... Um, won't name the serial company that did it, but they had an ad in the trade press wanting someone to come and help them in the marketing department develop their pester power. Um, how can you say that you're not doing this? And they had to admit, very red-faced, that of course they were doing this. They knew about pester power. They knew that this is one of the techniques that they were using to uh, induce um, purchases by kids using their parents. Let's turn to the global view on these issues. There are few people that have a a sense of the global nature of these issues that you have. Um, can you talk a little bit about the global nature of the obesity problem, but then also talk about how the food environment is changing in developing countries? Yeah, I mean, if you look at the way in which the world has changed just in the last 20 or 30 years with the rise of incomes in China and in uh, some of Latin America, Brazil, Argentina, and so on, you see massive changes in their dietary patterns. What used to be diets that were 
basically grain, staples and vegetables and a small amount of protein, uh, and now much more dietary uh, dominated by meats, fats, oils, sugars. They've moved much more towards what I would call a Western or even American type diet. And uh, it's not just that the diets look like that, the actual products are uh, similar. So you actually get a rise in the sorts of companies that are out there um, they're just like the ones in the US. They are indeed the same companies. The soft drinks companies, the fast food companies, the uh, breakfast cereal companies, they're the same ones. And they're picking up um, new markets in Brazil, Argentina, India, China. These are the huge new markets for them. And they're influencing the consumers in those markets with all the tricks of the trade, the advertising, the pricing, the positioning and promotion of foods. So that's been the sort of shift that we're seeing. And with it, of course, has come an enormous shift in, in obesity levels amongst adults in, uh, in these countries. So now there are more obese people, adults, in India than there are underweight people. We used to think of India as a country full of starving people and they needed more food. They don't. They've got too much. Adults now outnumber the number of underweight people. And that's really a significant change. Because the, the problems are beginning to occur, and in fact, in some cases, have, are really pretty far along in the developing world, but they're not certainly as far along with problems like obesity as the United States or the UK, does that indicate to you that they have an opportunity to intervene before the, the case is closed, the job is done, there's no hope of return? <laughs> well, I'd like to think there's hope for all of us that even here in the States and in UK, Europe, uh, that we can reverse some of this uh, pattern, but it's not going to be easy, I agree, um, because it means really a change in our food supply. It means reconsidering where we're investing uh, new industry, and it means cutting back. And you have to ask the, the soft drinks industry, what are their sales targets going to look like? What's their 10-year growth plans? Are they still trying to sell more soft drinks to us than they have in the past? Are they intending to expand? Uh, or are they beginning to change their patterns and come up with new products that will help us uh, defeat the obesity problem? Because unless they're doing that, you know, we've got a big battle on our hands. So we've got to look to industry. How are you going to help us make the changes? And I mean big help, not just little tinkering at the edges. This requires a big change. With the industry, um, food industry is all industries uh, preoccupied with growth. Um, do you think it's safe to say that much of the growth is happening outside of the countries where the industries reside? So that is, you have Nestle, Unilever, Kraft, the other big food companies in, in basically in Europe or the United States, but a lot of their growth is occurring outside of those places, isn't it? It is, but we also, I mean, yes, and that has to be challenged, uh, but we also have to think how is it occurring even in Central Europe, in Northern Europe, in North America, and so on. We have to ask you know, in each location, it's going to have its own issues, its own problems. Where is the direct investment coming? Is it coming from abroad or is it local? Uh, and, and how are we going to challenge that? And I, I guess um, these are issues that each government's going to have to face in turn, but perhaps need guidance from um, sort of world, uh, the World Trade Organization for direct investment issues, uh, Codex for trade issues, how a commodity is traded. World Health Organization to start, you know, well, are we actually marketing foods that are helping with our health or are they undermining our health? I think we need these international bodies to take a lead and to set high standards for um, industry to follow. And then if, if they can set those high standards, we can then start holding industry accountable and use 
a range of indicators to assess whether industry is moving in the right direction. If if one accepts the premise that there is a crisis here and that diet needs to be changed, how do you go about defining what foods sh we should be eating more of and less of? Well, the bad news for industry is that by and large the the high-profit foods tend to be the ones that we should be eating less of. So they're going to have to rethink their strategies a bit. Uh, if you want a rule of thumb, then the less processed, the better. Foods that tend to be um, fresh and direct from the farm are going to be a lot healthier for you than ones that are highly processed with long shelf lives. And that's bad news for the f processed food industry. But we are living in a time of dramatic change. We're reconsidering how our financial system works. We're reconsidering the car industry and our transport system. It's not unreasonable to reconsider, uh, particularly in the light of the you know, global warming and environmental pollution, uh, reconsider our food supply industry too and say, you know, where do we want to get our food from? Who is our food being produced for? Is it for us or is it for the companies? How do you respond to the industry argument that no one food is to blame for the problem? You know, you, you very often you'll hear, well, player, and, and scientists agree with this, that there are many causes for obesity, and so it would be impossible to attribute 100% of obesity to anything. And the food industry uses this as a way of saying, why pick on us? Like the fast food people would say that, or the soft drink people would say it. How do you respond to that? Uh, well, they've all got a role to play, haven't they? Because each of them is competing with each other to try and push their products. I think uh, the, the short answer is um, to, to come back to industry and say, uh, well, to give them some guidance on what is we consider to be healthy and what we consider to be unhealthy and say, look, the more you can produce the healthiest stuff, the happier we are. And if you're producing unhealthy stuff, then we may need some public policies to uh, restrict that. Because really, we can't carry on uh, having you promote all this unhealthy junk into into the current population, particularly to children. There need to be some sensible public health measures to um, bring that under control. So we need to define good and bad foods. Now, the industry hate this. They've always said there's no such thing as a bad food, only bad diets. But actually, it isn't true. There are good foods. There are foods that are, shall we say, less good or less healthful. And I think we need some, some greater clarification on this. And so would they be unhealthful enough to justify taxing or marketing restrictions? And how do you make that call about what crosses that well, line? Well, we already have some uh, justifications. We have taxes on different types of foods, and they're variable taxes. We have taxes, uh, certainly in Europe, we have um, sales taxes on luxury foods, but not on staple foods. Well, that doesn't need much tweaking to make it taxes on foods that are promoting obesity compared with foods that are perhaps much healthier and are recommended that we should eat more of. So I think we can we can adjust and tinker with the tax situation quite effectively. So what would you tax? I mean, if you, were to, if you were to be in charge of adjusting those sort of taxes, or, or any other intervention for that matter, what foods would you go after first? Well, it's easy just to list some of the sort of common uh, uh, bad areas of food, sort of confectionery and soft drinks and so on. But I think we could take a more scientific approach and develop a classification scheme, what we'd call a nutrient profiling scheme to decide what is and is not uh, healthy, promoting health or, or not promoting health. And in fact, uh, I'm not the first to think this idea. It's been thought about for some years, and the UK government has introduced a system into its legislation uh, where it permits the advertising of healthier foods to children on TV, but not the advertising of less healthy foods. So it's actually come up with a definition of what is good and what is bad. And this is a huge step forward because this has been enshrined in legislation on the statutes. 
uh, and it defines using a formula, it's not too difficult, using seven different aspects of the food to define whether it should or shouldn't be advertised. And that, that helps a lot in telling the industry, look, we can classify your foods, now talk about sales, growth figures, markets, because we can come in and help you improve your profile. So let's talk about good news. Um, and if you scan the world scene about progressive actions that are being taken to address diet, nutrition, and obesity areas, what do you think are some of the most promising approaches you've seen? Well, I think this nutrient profile issue is going to be one of them because taking um, taking up arms against the marketing of junk food is, has been one of the campaigns I've been involved with for heavens, 30 years. Uh, and we're now seeing that the World Health Organization uh, at its World Health Assembly last year called for um, the development of recommended code of practice uh, around the world. And we're beginning to see the first steps taken for that. And that probably will require this nutrient profiling system so that we can decide what should or shouldn't be marketed to children. So there's an important step being taken at the World Health Organization. Do you see any uh, any evidence of economic interventions being used to address these issues? Uh, we can think of some. I'm not sure that we've seen them yet. We already know that um, farm uh, support policies by different governments and by the European community, it's called the Common Agriculture Policy in Europe, these at the moment are supporting, if anything, they're supporting sort of meat and dairy uh, and the production of grain for animal feed. They're not sufficiently su supporting uh, fruit and vegetables or the consumption of healthier foods like fish and so on. So we could see that it wouldn't be difficult to change, or not too difficult, not too difficult to conceive of changing those policies, farm policies, so that we're actually encouraging um, less environmentally damaging and less health damaging products. Uh, towards something that's better. but So it's possible. We know it's possible. And you can think, well, you know, well, what else does government do that we ought to be looking at? And you think of uh, quite large amounts of money in Europe, at least, and probably over here, that are being put into uh, supporting industry research measures, agriculture research and production research and processing research, uh, industry uh, marketing even is being supported by government, how to get uh, products to market fresh and so on. These, these are government-sponsored, public sector-sponsored research initiatives, and they need to be uh, directed towards the production of healthy foods and not unhealthy foods. So they can be, if you like, nutrient-profiled uh, as to how we're spending public money. And then you get other um, possibilities too. You get uh, public procurement uh, contracts, so school food, hospital food, where, where food is being bought by large public sector organizations or charitable organizations or foundations, then these could also be nutrient profiled and you can ensure that the supplies of those foods meet a, a high quality criteria for health. So th those are good examples of where, if you like, economics could be used uh, to greater effect. So thus far we've been talking about some promising top-down approaches, you know, central governments acting in ways that you hope affect individuals ultimately. What's the role for local action in this arena, do you think? Well, funnily enough, local action has often been a stimulus for more interesting and genuine change than, than you get at national level. It's national often follows rather than leads local. So I'm thinking here of things like parents' activities, getting school boards to kick out the vending machines and change the vending machines, improve food standards in schools. That started really at local and school board level. Uh, and then graduated up through state to federal level. It's not, by and large, been a, a government initiation uh, of this of this move. In the Europe, we had, you know, Jamie Oliver, a celebrity chef on TV, 
um, doing a whole series of very interesting TV programs about trying to get kids to eat more healthily in schools and coming to the conclusion that it needed government action. It was not enough. Uh, just to try and persuade kids without without better government support. I mean, there were not enough kitchens in schools, and the budgets for the schools were so low that only really crappy junk food could be bought. So this needed changing. And uh, with a celebrity chef persuading Tony Blair at a meeting at number 10 that he had to spend more money on this, uh, he, and the cameras were following him around, uh, this got done. And we have now in the UK some much better school food standards than we had five years ago. So you're painting a picture of how an individual, even somebody who's not a celebrity, can really make a difference. A parent who gets together with other parents to work with the school system to change the foods, a variety of things like that become really important local victories that then can spread. And and as you said, maybe the... uh, National legislation follows from that. So people uh, people living in their own communities can have a great deal of power in this issue, can't they? They can indeed, and I'm all for empowerment because uh, really a top-down approach often doesn't work too well at local level. If it's only being conceived by civil servants and, and people up at the top, then it, it, it needs to be applied at local level. And if it can be actually started at local level, that's where the thinking is most creative and most productive. So... Yeah, more empowerment, more local action. How do we mobilize mobile local action? <laughs> now, Kelly, you're asking for some <laughs> real political answers here. How do we get local action? I mean, as a parent, well, I... Well, I'll give you an example. Yeah. I mean, you, you've been very active in with the media. So when the International Obesity Task Force issues reports, they tend to get attention mm. in the media, and you get quoted in the media a good bit, and your colleagues do as well. And that seems to me to be a real concerted effort to change public opinion, to alert people to the issues here. And that becomes one way of mobilizing local action. It, it does. Um, and indeed, one of the messages that we, we like to put out is that uh, as a parent, you don't want to be anxious about these issues. You want to turn your anxiety into something a bit nearer anger at what you're being sold. So you're no longer anxious about what you're feeding your kids, but you're angry at the way the industry is manipulating you and your children. And then you turn that anger into action and you find the support you need locally or nationally. There are a large number of advocacy organizations around the world, consumer groups and other advocacy groups, who will be there to help you. And there's material around uh, that they can offer you and there's advice and there'll be experience elsewhere. So, as I say, don't be anxious, get angry, and then use that anger to get active. Well, that's a, it's a positive note to end on then, to know that people can be empowered and can take action at their local level and that that can make a big difference nationally, ultimately, as more and more people catch on. So our guest today was Dr. Tim Lobstein, Director of the Childhood Obesity Program at the International Obesity Task Force in London. Um, I urge you to go to the Rudd Center website to uh, get access to other excellent podcasts we've had and also to see um, a variety of resources we have available, including a free email newsletter that comes out monthly on food, nutrition, and public policy issues. Thank you for joining us, Tim. It was very nice to have you today. It's been my pleasure. Thank you very much.